So I did train as a historian, a historian of medicine, uh, originally. Um, and so let me start with a, a historical perspective about the origins of cancer screening in the early 20th century. Even before we had any uh, technologies for uh, detecting cancer early, uh, organizations like the American Cancer Society and then the National Cancer Institute, when it uh, was founded, um, believed in the idea that earlier is better, that if we can catch cancer earlier, then we're more likely uh, to save people's lives. Uh, and much of the attention in the early decades or so of, of cancer screening was focused on women's cancers. Um, and of course, the first new technology to come along was the pap smear developed by George Pap Nicolau at Cornell University um, and uh, with funding from the American Cancer Society and uh, the National uh, Cancer Institute. Now this idea that new uh, technologies focused on early detection of technology uh, of cancer uh, um, is still motivating uh, publicly funded R&D, but also a huge amount of hive money is going into development of new screening technologies. This company raised nearly a billion dollars in one year to save down in Silicon Valley. Um, and it's indicative of the amount of uh, commercial commitment uh, to the development of new screening technologies. But despite this continued leap in the benefits of early detection, even people in the American Cancer Society, one of the most powerful advocates for uh, cancer screening in the United States of America, uh, have begun to uh, voice some concern about the possibility that we have oversold the promise exaggerated the benefits and that we have um, <coughs> uh, not done a good enough job in communicating uh, the harms of cancer. But a more complicated picture is beginning to emerge. So let's talk about uh, specifically the case of breast cancer. So I think many people would, um, if they were going to point to where the current
screening reduces deaths from breast cancer. If the dot's to the right of the line, it means screening increases the deaths from breast cancer. So if you look at all of these, the general picture of the trials is, looks like screening reduces deaths from breast cancer. And the big diamond at the bottom is a summary of all of the trials um, put together. So that puts the relative risk at 0.8. So what it's saying is for, um, for a host of women who die of breast cancer who weren't screened, if they do not have a screening, only 18 might have died of breast cancer. So it looks really promising. Why is there any promising? Well, all these trials look great. But that's the UK review. This is the Cochrane review. And the Cochrane review said, well, actually, quite a lot of these
deleting another file, it deleted this one along here. So there was even less evidence against it. So it depends whether you believe that the problems in these trials are enough to not use the evidence from them. The other thing to mention is the two Kluge trials, the Canada trials, they were very well run trials, but actually what they compared was screening using x-rays from images to um, screening using uh, a clinician examining the breast. So their, their control group wasn't no screening at all. And so that could mean they, they could have underestimated the benefits of breastfeeding. So there's all these complications. Um, but overall, the estimates are in the direction of screening with using breast catheter. So what about this overdiagnosis, detecting disease that, um, that wouldn't ever have caused treatment? So this is the summary again from the UK Independent Review. There's only three trials included because to provide evidence for this, you need to leave without screening in both groups. You need a follow-up period without screening, which wasn't achieved in a lot of the trials. So you can see that they estimate that just under 20%, so around one in five cancers detected at breast screening are overdiagnosed, i.e. they would never have become symptomatic and therefore their treatment was um, unnecessary. However, we should also mention underestimated the benefits, it could also have underestimated the overdiagnosis. So included in numbers that actually make sense to people, the UK Independent Review Summary says if 10,000 women invited to screening for 20 years, you would detect 681 cancers. Of those, 129 would be overdiagnosed. 43 would have their life saved. The Cochrane Review says 10,000 women invited to screen for 10 years, you have 50 overdiagnoses and 5 life saved. So the numbers are really different between people groups. The reason for that is twofold. One, they included different trials, which we talked about. Two, they actually applied the numbers to different so the UK review applies their numbers to a population at more risk of dying, and so the reductions in deaths were greater. So, it's a really complex picture, um, and you can see how academics could disagree because there's, there's not certainty. So having said all of that, I'm going to add another layer of complication. These trials were done in the 1970s. We used to only have one radiology, 
which is very controversial. Some people call it a precancer. Other people say it shouldn't be called a precancer because often it doesn't develop into a cancer. But it has been associated with early diagnosis cancer. And we are now detecting a lot more of this early disease and this ductal carcinoma in situ. So if lung cancer were diagnosed back in the 1970s, what would
other examinations categorized by breast density here's about 8% of the population have very, very dense breasts. And you say, well, actually, the cancer detection rate is very respectable, 6%. But the problem is cancers occurring between the two are much, much higher in the very dense group compared to, say, the very fatty group, 0.7% compared to 4.4%. And it's just a reflection, I can see these cancers. So these are all your can see the cancers in very dense breasts. So you need to think about alternatives. This is the, the numbers I mentioned, 2 million in the UK. The United States is a bit of one, 32 million of them um, being taken every year. So should you be doing something different? You know, for 40 years we've been doing something and not succeeding. So maybe we should be thinking if we could actually <coughs> properly identify people who are at increased risk of developing breast cancer and maybe not doing anything very much for those people who aren't at risk of breast cancer. Are there things we can do? And this is from Doug Easton and basically he reckons that by using And then the other area that I've been working in is 
Here's a little irregular shaggy looking transposal image. MRIs are really sensitive things. And again, maybe in women who've got very dense breasts or increased risk of breast cancer, we should be thinking about doing something like MRIs. There's quite a lot of examination currently, but we basically can do a fast 10 minute examination and a radiation examination. So, as, as Shannon said, the current situation is we have two readers, two views. So there's plenty of time for discussion. Um, but I, I'm going to talk about um, involving uh, patients, women, in, um, in the production of <coughs> tools to use to communicate. Um, and uh, I, I think it's really important. I used to work on risk assessment and things like that. And I, for reasons which I'll explain, I think I'm now absolutely convinced about the need for engaging
main qualification to be one of the statisticians on that was that you were eminent and you'd never worked on breast cancer screening. And so the, thing, the, the, the first qualification was you did not know anything about breast cancer screening. Yes, we'll have you. That was the qualification they put to me. And, you know, very good Simon Thompson, Doug Olson, really good statistician, who had never worked on screening because everybody regarded it as a gimmick. And, and they came up with numbers, but they were judgments, the best estimates from a group of assuming they're all going to be protected, 0.12 be treated and survive, fantastic 8% survival rate. You know, this is all very simplified, of course, basically said that surviving three will die only from their breast cancer. Okay, let's compare it with, using this idea of expected frequencies, 200 women not going to screen. Now these, the, the crucial, these figures do not match exactly the figures in the review. The review and all this evidence we've been putting out is the effect of being invited for screening. All the randomized trials compare people not invited for screening, but people invited for screening, not people who attend screening. None of that data that was shown was about people who attend screening. So it has to be adjusted, because what you want to know when you read your leaflet is what is the benefit of attending screening? You've already been invited. So this is the, this is the, um, uh, this, is, this data has to be adjusted to actually answer the question that women want to know, not what policymakers want to know. Okay, so we are 15 women, same number will develop breast cancer, eight will be treated and survive, four will die from their breast cancer. That's one extra death in the group 200 women not going to screen. However, three of these women, 20%, the 20% overdiagnosed that we've heard, three of these women will actually um, not be affected by, they won't know they've got breast cancer. But in this group, They've been protected. There's three more treatments and one fewer death. That's that's um, 1,300 essentially essentially 1,300 lives saved from the screening program every year at the cost of 4,000 women unnecessarily treated because of the breast screening program. And that's the effect. And those numbers are all in the leaflet. Quite extraordinary. A lot of argument. Whoa, goodness! Because the committee that set this up, there was everybody there: the statisticians, the psychologists, the nurses, the doctors, screening oncologists. So one of the things that you, if you remember the leaflet that's not in the leaflet is this picture. It got taken out <laughs> of the last draft. Very, very upset about it. <laughs> Tell me how does it look back? Because they tried on a focus group and people said, oh, I can't understand it. Now, I know I can explain this to anybody, anybody. But the, if you just see it and you've never seen these things before, it is complicated. It's quite a story behind it. Much better on a computer when you can carefully get advice. So on the
the leaflets were optimized to be with low numeracy. There's some evidence, reasonable, that low numeracy people do not you know, avoid shared decision making to some extent. In other words, you know, better educated, more numerous people tend to engage more with shared decision making, for whatever reason, but that's there. What this means is that the leaflets are designed for people who don't want to read the leaflets. <laughs> and that is the paradox. And what this suggests to me, of course, is that how naive and a modern age has, has dated the idea of a one size fits all for how should be managing people. And that's why. So, so I, I didn't quite hear all of your question, but um, about 20% of breast cancers are lobular cancers, and they can be harder to see on a mammogram ah. because the cancerous cells just grow through the tissues of the breast rather than causing a lump that makes it easier for us to see. So that can be quite hard for the radiologist to pick up on a mammogram. It's not the case with the, some of the other tests. And I think the, the first part of your question was about different, uh, well, we can't tell. Yes, so, so what happens is, as, as we were explaining, that the woman comes back to a clinic if we think, oh, there's something on the x-ray, we need to do more tests. And then if we still think there's something <coughs> there, we will do a biopsy and get tissue and send it to the pathology department and say, yes, there are definitely cancerous cells there. So if we're making a diagnosis of cancer, we always get tissue to prove the cancer's there. 
But what we can't tell is whether this is a cancer that would never have been known about in the woman's lifetime had we not done the test, or this is a cancer that is not going to kill the person, even though it would have appeared clinically and with a lump, against, or is this a cancer that's going to, is destined to kill this woman? So it's very difficult for us to tell which is which. We're, we're beginning to get there because we're doing, um, we, we look at molecular markers, uh, signatures um, around the cells to see if you know, there's some cells which are bigger and look more aggressive and they are more likely to spread to other parts of the body and, and you know, cause death compared to some of these other cancers where they're called grade one, the cells are very small, they're very innocent looking. And what we're trying to do with those cancers is do less treatment. And in some, there's a trial running where we actually just observe them. You know, we say, it's actually, it's okay. We don't need to do any more. Yes, a bit like the, what we do with prostate cancer. We have exactly yeah. the same problem with prostate cancer. We diagnose far more than we'd ever have known about, and we don't really know how to treat them properly. In some cases of prostate cancer, they should just be left. And there is big, bigger trials in prostate cancer of this watchful, you know, active surveillance. Mm -hmm. And we are starting to do those in breast. Mm -hmm. So we've got Jensen here, and then uh, lady on the left, Margaret. So looking at all of the, the outcomes we've talked about in the statistics of cancer, we're all talking about reducing the number of deaths from, say, breast cancer. Now, this is mostly what people tend to talk about, it's almost every single screen for us. But what's the rationale to do that rather than looking at total mortality, which you would kind of naively expect to pick up any really serious side effects So ideally, absolutely, we reduce total mortality. It gives a much better picture. But if you do a randomized controlled trial, to get the statistical power to measure the outcome of total mortality, it needs to be much bigger. And therefore, it needs to be much more expensive. And that's why we use disease-specific mor mortality as a proxy, because we can afford it a lot of the time. No, no, I, I yeah. absolutely agree with that. But, but your point is extremely well made because unless you have a reduction in overall mortality or all-cause mortality, then what are you doing? And it's, it's certainly something that's coming out in the kind of preventing overdiagnosis kind of um, camp, um, if I can call it a camp, <laughs> um, discussion. It is, it is like it's millions of people you need in trials when you're looking at all-cause mortality. That, that's the problem that we have. So we've got lady here and then... Yeah, okay, okay, just one. Yeah. Um, this is Jenny from 
Prime time trial was a radiotherapy study where we. Yeah, so, so in, in people where there was a very small cancer and it was not aggressive cells, then they thought it would be safe to not give them radiotherapy. And there was prime time one, prime time two. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the problem is that the AI might be able to um, uh, identify certain things, but as the previous, you know, question has said, you don't know what the prognostic importance of these features is. You do need long-term, and, and you can't just do that quickly by developing a new bit of technology. You can't just find out that cancers are slow-growing cancers. You know, you need the follow-up to know that. You know, so... It's, it's, you, the AI, I think, I think it's very limited what, actually what it's going to be able to achieve. So, yeah, the, I, I, so I'm just looking at it, I was talking about te new technology. technology. So, yeah. and, you know, is, is it that, uh, you know, when you're trying to think about early diagnosis, people are harmed in these ways, isn't it? You're intellectually sure that it's heat stroke and you're about to say. So, yeah. so, well, so that in point, that your point is very well made. And so it kind of forces us if we want to use technology and we, we want some information about it before we buy it and put it into the NHS, we need to do some work. Mm -hmm. And so recognising the speed at which technology is now changing, then we are willing to accept these surrogate endpoints. So not death, not all-cause mortality, but kind of coming back to, okay, here's a set of characteristics in a cancer which makes you, the prediction is that you are more likely to get spread to other parts of the body and die. So we've got information about which cancers are more likely to kill somebody than not. 
And so what we can do, uh, we can begin to then use that surrogate information of endpoints to allow us to do faster studies, albeit still with large numbers of people, so that we can test new technology in a timely way. Are you going to be able to tell which patient is going to be killed by their radiotherapy or killed by their chemotherapy? Because that's the crucial issue in terms of you know, the long-term harms of treatment. Absolutely. So the, so the adverse consequences from radiotherapy is about from between 25 and 30 years. People get lung fibrosis, they get heart disease. Um, there, there's, there's real adverse consequences for people. And that was part of the reason for the prime time study. You know, after their surgery, could you avoid doing radiotherapy? And the answer is for some cancers, definitely. And there was much more benefit for not having radiotherapy because of the harms that you're causing. And likewise, chemotherapy can be quite dangerous. I mean, it's not pleasant to take. And sometimes you get people, you know, having a really adverse reaction to it and, and succumbing. And that's terrible, particularly if she was never going to be dying and all we were doing was trying to mop up unknown spread of cells to other parts of the body. So we've got a gentleman here. Yeah, but so in countries like the UK where you're offering everyone screening, you can't ethically randomise some people no longer to get the offer. So it just can't happen. What you can do is you can do randomised control trials of changes to screening and, and follow up. And if, if you think it's going to be a big dramatic change, then you may in some cases be able to follow up over many years and have a big enough effect size. The other thing where that there may be possibilities for new studies is countries that are just starting to roll out screening or are less far along the pathway. Um, for example, India, there's, there's screening rolling out in India. The, there could be possibilities there. But again, that will be in a different population, so there might be issues with transferability. There's also an issue around 
We're chasing smaller and smaller effect sizes in the sense as treatment improves and, and so on, the, the benefits of this are, are going to be smaller and smaller. Extremely difficult to, te to detect. And given that you, know, you can just see in these randomized trials how subject to problems they were in terms of their design and their analysis, these were, they're all contested. Every single one of those trials is contested. So it, this is not going to happen again. And actually, I think it's, it's extremely difficult to work out what, you know, what are the benefits? Because we're talking about small effects. Um, I, the, the studies are much more likely to be, I think, uh, in terms of in terms of having to prostate of, of what you know when people are diagnosed, how should how should they be followed up and, and, and treated? And, and this idea is, is now of making active surveillance a respectable cancer treatment, which is which now men are accept, having to accept for the prostate, which is quite a shock for some people. Well, you've got cancer, and we're not going to do anything about it. I think that's just going to become more and more common um, throughout the cancers, and we're going to have to get used to it. That this is something that many people are going to be wandering around with untreated cancer, knowing they've got cancer. So they, for all of the existing screening programs, they're constantly re-evaluating how they should be run. And so there's a series of things sort of in the pipeline, you know, the new technologies that are being evaluated to see should, should changes be made. And that's true for every screening program we have. When you think about um, your genes, then it's about two to three percent of cancers are due to um, a faulty gene that has been inherited from your parents. Um, if a cancer develops in a young person, you know, under the age of 40, then the chances are higher. It's about 12 to 13 percent likelihood, or not likely. Very careful the words I use. <laughs> 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 this statistician. <laughs> so the, the it's a thirteen percent, twelve thirteen percent of cancers in women under forty are like are due to an inherited faulty gene. Are we talking about BRCA? 
Yeah, ma mainly the, the BRCA gene. Yeah. There are other <coughs> genes that are discovered, you know, PALP B2, check to there's ATM, there's, there's a number of other genes, but predominantly it, it's, it's the so BRCA we, gene. We, we found the BRCA1-2 genes, and we know that they, particularly in women with a family history of breast cancer, they shift risk really very significantly. Yeah. Um, if you've got a family history of breast cancer, it's less clear how much of a shift risk if uh, you don't have a family history of breast cancer. Um, and then beyond that, as Fiona said, we found a whole load of other genes. Um, but as with most common complex diseases, they're only shifting risk in quite, well, really very modest That's ways. So people have So one of the questions I was asked by the person who heads up the, the screening program, um, Anne Mackey, she said, well, would women accept, because we were proposing this I choose study, which is you can have a mammogram every five years or no mammogram at all if you're in this very, very low risk group. And we thought, okay, I choose. I choose not to come rather than I'm not coming at all because I just don't believe in it. But I choose not to come because my risk is of breast cancer is so low. So I'm, my question to you is, is that an acceptable trial for us to do? And is it something that as a, as a nation we think would be a reasonable thing to do as a policy? Because if we're never going to introduce it as a policy, then there's no point us doing a trial to test if it's worthwhile or not. If the risk, if your risk had been more clearly explained, you could then have chosen different, different strategy yes, of screening. Yes. Yeah, and offered, like for example, DNA testing wasn't offered, uh, MRI wasn't offered. So if you can uh, give the pros and cons. 
said about this is it's this is for people who do want to engage with the decision it's everyone's right to say um, thank you very much for telling me this uh, what would what would you do or what do you recommend I do and which um, and many people will want to take and you know essentially but I don't think paternalism should be delivered as the first resort um, you know the balanced explanation weighing it up to the extent that somebody is willing to, to listen to it should be provided. If then they want to opt for you know, a paternalistic approach, that's completely, completely fine. That's their option. Many people just say, just do it. You know, I don't want to do it. And, and in terms of accepting treatments as well, people don't want to engage with that. That's completely optional. But it, I think it's um, uh, no, longer no longer acceptable. I mean, and legally, it's no longer acceptable to just tell somebody do without having, you know, given, explained what the possible harms and benefits could be. But it mean, doesn't mean you have to go into all the numbers or anything like that. And that's why, you, one, you know, any decent communication now is, should be at about three different levels. You have a gist level with no numbers at the top, basically saying there is a choice. Just that picture, the gist level. Then if people want to know more, they can get the sort of numbers that I've shown. For people in Cambridge, they can find the underlying evidence. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, how, how do you support children? Have you? I um, So I would choose for my uh, wife and my daughter when they get old enough to have a discussion with David and Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> but not Fiona. <laughs> could not dare tell her what to do. Um, she loves screening. She rings them up and says, is it my screening appointment yet? <laughs> and I, not, you know, so if that's her attitude to screening, then great. 
then she should go. Well, I'm going to cop out and say I would never suggest to anyone what they should do. It's a, I think, a completely personal decision. I never want to make a recommendation. So I tend to recommend screening, um, but I tend to also send them the latest papers. <laughs> I think you should have a look at these. And yeah, because uh, well, something I should point out that many of you will know that you get this lovely balanced leaflet saying on one hand on the other. With the leaflet, you get a letter inviting you to a screening appointment, <laughs> which is a massive nudge. You know, that it's not offering you an appointment, it's not suggesting would you like an appointment, it's, it's giving you an appointment, time, yeah. Yeah, which is a huge bit of behavioural you know, insights nudge. for a machine to read the mammogram. So in a proportion, no human will look at them, just the machine. Of which? Of which percentage? Of, of the ones where there's no cancers. Yeah. You know, very, there's only going to be, you know, like maybe one in a million or whatever, maybe slightly more than that. The you're happy with the machine? Yeah. I'm going to quote you. I'm going to quote you, thank you. Thank you to Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. Well done.